0: We're going to do some exegesis tonight, somewhat detailed. So let's get right to it. We'll have a few moments. Father, we thank you for the extraordinary privilege we had recently of meeting. Fellow believers, fellow ministers, and pastors in the New Kensington area, in which we had very rich fellowship, we thank you for the Telestai phalanx that also attended. What we pray for ourselves tonight, we pray for all our fellow believers, our family in Christ, in this whole area, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. We ask that simply, we ask that however with faith and with absolute confidence that you will bring it to pass, in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 11, 7, third rhetorical question asked by Paul, first one in 11, one. Second one in 11.2, third one right here, what then, he says, Israel did not find what it was looking for. But the elect did find it. The elect are those members of Israel, Jewish Christians. That's he ek lage. That's where we have the word election. He ek lage. So we have the elect. Then we have the rest. The rest here is not hoy poloi, like the word for hoi Poloi, but it's some, something like it. It's hoi loipoi, the rest, hoi loipoi. In the Greek, it would look like this, hoi, l-o-i-p-o-i, hoi loipoi. The elect did find it. The rest, hoi loipoi, were hardened, now this is a very important doctrine tonight, and so I'm going to take a little time on it. But the aorist passive indicative third person plural of porao is used here for hardened. P O R omicron O omega O P O R O O, which if we put it in English, it would look something like this: porao. So what then, Israel? did not find what it was looking for. It was looking for deliverance through its own piety and its own obedience to the law. But the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. Now, the hardening process is a combination of two things. It's, it involves two of what we might call symptoms, but they are... Symptoms that run very deep. The rest were hardened. The first is sclerosis, which is a hardening. We know that for arteriosclerosis is the hardening of the arteries, for example, sclerosis. And then there's the second symptom, which is scatosis, which is a kind of blindness. And so we have really obduracy, which is another word for stubbornness. Obduracy or stubbornness and blindness, blindness, spiritual blindness, blindness of the eyes of the heart, which prevents insight, prevents understanding. So the hardening process is a combination of these two things. It's a condition that prevents insight and spiritual understanding. This, this condition now afflicted not only the synagogue goers in Mark 3, five. that's a famous verse, but it also afflicted Jesus' own disciples in Mark 6.52 and confer also with Mark 8.17. In the former case, the synagogue goers, including the Pharisees, Jesus felt both anger with them and sympathy for them. He was angered and sorrowed at the same time because of the hardness of their heart. These synagogue synagogue goers were angry because Jesus had healed the man who had, one translation said, his hand was dead, radically disabled, in other words, Which is a picture of us under sin, under the power of sin, radical incapacity. And so they were angered that Jesus healed the man with the radically disabled hand on the Sabbath. And you see, it's because their own cultus, again, that's a word I began to use last night, not cult, but cultus. That's a system of piety. It includes the liturgy, the sacraments, or the sacrifices, or the rituals of any given. Religious persuasion, cultus, C-U-L-T-U-S. Their own cultus, including the Sabbath, hardened their hearts and prevented them from rejoicing at this healing on the Sabbath, because it was on the Sabbath. Their own system of piety, therefore, had hardened their hearts. In the latter case, Jesus' own disciples, quote Mark 652 had not understood notice they lacked insight they didn't understand about the loaves or the multiplication of the loaves and what that meant they didn't understand it and mark says because their hearts were hardened because their hearts were hardened they didn't understand because their hearts we're hardened, the perfect passive form again, same word parao, is used there as it's used in our Mark passage, which that's what got my attention. So this hardening condition of the heart, cardia, is also a condition of the mind, the systematic sum of a person's thoughts, the systematic sum of our thoughts, and that's found in second Corinthians 3:14. That's a very important passage. And the sum of our thoughts is N-O-E-M-A-T-A, noemata, ta, the article, noemata, ta, noemata, the thoughts, the thoughts, the sum total, or we could say the systematic sum of one's thoughts, also hardened in 2 Corinthians 3.14. And it severely affects one's reading of the scriptures. Specifically, the Old Testament, Paul mentions. To this day, he says, when the, the Old Testament is read, the veil remains over the heart. The hardening of the heart, that the ta noemata, the hardening, porosis of the system of thinking presented a veil over the heart in the reading of the Old Testament. It prevails to this day, too, our day. It prevails to this day. There's actually Christians that don't think we need the Old Testament, which to me shows a hardening of the mind. We absolutely need it, as much as the New Testament. The New Testament is lost without the Old. It's lost. There's no, it's, it's unanchored. It's not, it's lost its moorings. And if we're going to have the mind of Christ, we'll have to know the Old Testament, because his mind was filled with the Old Testament truth. There was no Bible but the Old Testament when Jesus came. So this severely affects one's reading of the Scriptures. And it comprises a veil over the mind, noema, a veil which is only removed in Christ. And there's the good news a veil which is only removed in Christ. I always rejoice when I see that phrase in Christ because I see salvation, I see solution, I see good news, I see hope. Now this condition prevailed in part of Israel in Paul's time, even as today, but not today only in part of Israel. There's a remarkable truth hidden here in 2 Corinthians 3.14 in connection with this Romans 11 passage, but it's no longer hidden to the eyes that the Spirit has enlightened, your eyes. The veil is only taken away in Christ. So only in Christ can one look back into the Old Testament and see Christ, just as only in Christ can one look back and assess one's former radically disabled condition, which is death in sins. We don't even know we're dead in sins until we're in Christ and we see it retrospectively. It's a condition, radical Incapacity, ethical incapacity, moral incapacity, spiritual incapacity, which is only called death in sins. It's a condition only alleviated by God in Christ. So this man with the withered hand, as it says, Zerainio is used, that means withered to the point of being dead. When a branch is cut off from the tree, it's thrown away, it withers, it dies. So that was a dead Hand essentially when that man was healed by Jesus. The only condition on that man's part. Was the condition he was in. The only condition. That had to be met by him for Jesus Christ to unconditionally graciously heal him. He didn't say, are you a believer in me? He said, stretch forth your hand. The only condition to be met by that man was the condition he was in, which was hopeless and helpless and radically disabled. It was a condition which could only be divinely alleviated by the great physician. So the condition of hardness of heart and mind is the reason why people, including, air quote, Christians, including Christians, fail to see Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance, both in the Old and the New Testaments. So often, as with Israel in Paul's day, this is because of a commitment to to a system, a system of thought or thoughts, a system of liturgy and worship and songs and doctrines and dogmas, a system of thinking and a system of unenlightened reasoning. And so really the hardness comes from a commitment to piety, which has hardened their minds into convictions about divine Eternal retribution, for example. I'll show you how that's rebuked in one of the verses coming up. Doctrines of eternal damnation. Almost always because of a crass literal interpretation of the scripture and because of a failure to exegete the words of scripture and because of a commitment which accepts eternal hell as a basic tenet of faith and it's not a basic tenet of biblical faith but unfortunately it is a tenet of areas of Christendom now when I say Christendom that's a term that's used for the the domain in which Christianity is demonstrated but when I say Christendom I mean the realm or the sphere in which people have selected Christianity as their religion as opposed to Islam or Buddhism, or Sikhism, or Judaism. So often it's Christians who fail to see Jesus in his universally saving significance in the Old or New Testaments. And so that too is like Israel because of a commitment. To a systematic piety, maybe they've grown up with it, or maybe they've left an old system and run into a new system, gone from the frying pan into the fire. The point I'm making is that often this hardness arises from a reasoning that's been unenlightened by the very scriptures that they claim to treasure. And they do really treasure those scriptures, The point I'm making is that only God, in his irresistible grace and power, can remove the stony heart, as he calls it, and replace it with a heart of understanding. Only God. And this is exactly what God proposes to do and does do now. Through the new covenant that has been ratified by the blood of Jesus, the Messiah. And made effective in each and every human being by the spirit of God and only by the spirit of God. The blood of Christ demonstrates the heart of the divine mission number one. And by the spirit of God, I'm speaking of divine mission two. Now, listen carefully and note this well. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six to 27. The prophet of the exile, whose name was Ezekiel. He describes the new covenant in his own way. Yahweh, the God of Israel, says through this prophet of the exile, when Israel had been exiled following the first destruction, the first death of Jerusalem, I will give you a new heart and place a new spirit within you. And I will take away the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In that case, flesh is a very positive thing. It means a heart of humanity, a heart that's human in the strictest sense of humanity as demonstrated by who Jesus Christ is. Then in 27, he says, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe My ordinances cause you. And Jim brought this to my attention a few weeks ago, and I remembered it. God keeps saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will will give you a new heart. And there's no stipulation on your part. There's no requirement. There's no condition. He says, I will give you a new heart and place a new spirit within you. I will take away, I will take away the heart of stone from your flesh and replace it with a heart of humanity. Now, here's a heart transplant indeed performed by the great physician. And then I will place my spirit within you and cause you. I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. And I'm going to interpret that last phrase soon. God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. And of course, it's tempting to play that off against Lucifer or Satan's five I wills. In Isaiah 14. Where he says five times, I will. I will ascend and be like the most high. That's the essence of religiosity right there. But here God says, I will. He might as well be saying, I will save all of Israel. Because who's he promising this to? The elect? No, the hardened of heart. Who's this promised for? Those with stony hearts. The promises to those... (laughs) whose hearts have been hardened. But this goes against my system of belief that says that if the heart is hardened, that's the unpardonable sin, and that you will be plunged into eternal hell forever and ever, and this is a forever thing, because dear old Dr. So-and-so drummed it into my head. It's in our doctrinal dogmatic manuals. It's written into our songs and liturgy, and it's just a systematic way that I think. Really? Add, let's see, what is it now? I got one the other day. $2.07 to that, and you can get a cup of coffee, a large one to go, which is what I do once in a while. So then... God might as well be saying, I will save all of Israel. I will bring in all the nations. I will turn the attention of the ends of the earth to me and save them. I will do all my will. I will. You can no more bring this about than a person under anesthesia. And this is, I'm likening to the spirit of stupor that was given to Israel. No one can, you can no more bring this about, what I just said God's going to do. You could no more bring this about than a person under anesthesia can perform their own heart transplant without a physician. Again, only when this new heart and new spirit is given and the spirit is placed within can we see and understand. We don't go to God and say, I understand everything about you now. And God says, good, then I'll gift you with my spirit. The gift of the spirit precedes everything, including faith, because he's called the spirit of faith in Second Corinthians 4.13. So only when this new heart and new spirit is given and the spirit, Holy Spirit, is placed within, can we see and understand. So these utterances of God through the prophet of the exile named Ezekiel are not conditional. I don't see any stipulations. I don't see any requirements. I don't see any conditions. I don't see a contract. I see a covenant. It's unilateral. I will, I will, I will, I will. Not I will if you will. I will. That's the God of Israel speaking. These utterances, these oracles do not form a contract with stipulations, conditions, or requirements to be met by the stony hearted. Imagine that. I will take out your stony heart. But you, with stony hearts, have to fulfill certain conditions. It just doesn't it's it's not reasonable. It's not intelligent. We're not being attentive if we don't really look at this. We're certainly not being responsible and we're not being loving. It's impossible to be loving without the love of Christ controlling us. And since one died for all and all died, then the love of Christ from now on controls me, Paul said. It's not a bilateral contract, but a unilateral covenant. It's the new covenant. He prophesies it just as clearly here as Jeremiah does in thirty one, verses thirty one to thirty four. Ricky, you just read that recently and told me about it. See, I remember these conversations in the hallway. That's one of my favorite times in life is the times I've spent between this pulpit and the Yankee Stadium, which is now in the bathroom. Probably have to pull it out because I'm going to start following them again. Incidentally, don't give up on the Pirates. The best Pirate game ever played was last night. The, the Dodger pitcher had a no-hitter going and almost a perfect game, and it was ruined by Josh Harrison who hit a home run. They beat the Dodgers one to nothing. That's a word from the Lord for you, Pastor Brown. <laughs> he had his Steeler shirt on Sunday, said, I, I gave up on the Pirates. Now, I guess that wasn't Sunday, but it was one of these days. But it is the new covenant which has been confirmed by the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus took the cup and instituted the Eucharist, what did he say? This represents my blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant. It's his blood, not my blood obedience it's his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion there is a mediator between this unilateral covenant which is strange to say because usually if you have a contract you have a mediator but there's a mediator even in the last will and testament that we have according to hebrews 9 but there is a mediator between god and man but it is a mediator that mediates a unilateral covenant and make sure it, it, it gets done, as it were. And in another sense, if there were conditions placed on humanity, they were met by the mediator. They're met in the mediator. I love the phrase, en Christo, in Christ. And so, it's the new covenant which has been confirmed, ratified, endorsed, Sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ like that of a lamb without blemish because he and nobody else mediates this unilateral covenant. There is no condition. No stipulation. No requirement placed on those radically disabled. And in fact dead. You can't get any more radically disabled than dead in sins. In Ephesians 2 1. Because. Because. There's no condition on the dead in sins. Moreover, that God himself causes those who receive his spirit to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. That is fulfilled. Not when we go back to the Old Testament and look up all the statutes and ordinances. But that's fulfilled when the recipients of his spirit participate in the faithfulness of the mediating Messiah. Because when the Holy Spirit is, sheds abroad the love of God in your heart, you're already fulfilling all the statutes and ordinances of God, which are summed up in this. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon this, all the Torah, all the Nebi'im, the prophets, hang. They hang on that peg. And God causes us to do that by the Holy Spirit. Who pours out that love in our hearts grace we thought we knew grace and we did we did I knew grace the first message I preached at IUP in 1978 November 18th I knew grace then I didn't know it like I know it now though I didn't know it like I know it now we kept moving Now, I'll say that again to interpret Ezekiel 26, 27. To follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances is fulfilled when the recipients of his spirit participate in the faithfulness of the mediating Messiah. And when the Holy Spirit, who was given to us permanently and marks us permanently, pours out the love of God in our our new hearts, our new human hearts. God's salvific will extends to both the elect and the rest. Eklegoi, or the eklektos, the eklektoi, the elect, which is that part of Israel in Paul's day, which had believed, which had had faith elicited and had received the spirit. And God's salvific or saving will extends to the Hoy, loi, poi, the rest too. See, remember where we're aiming? Always keep this orientation. True north. The arrow goes true north. All Israel will be saved. All the nations will come in. Play Roma. The totality of the nations will come in. And then all Israel, Pas Israel, will be saved. Play Roma, the pagan play Roma, plus the Israelite fullness equals humanity in toto. And this makes us look at Jesus Christ in his universally redeeming importance. So when I say God's saving will or salvific will extends to both the elect and the rest, I ask this my own. Rhetorical question. How can it not? How can it not extend to the rest? It's the elect whom God has already given a new heart. It is the hardened whom he promises to take away the stony heart. Who, does he ta- who is he talking here to if not the rest? Those with stony hearts. The elect don't have stony hearts. They've had them taken out. So who's this promise to? The rest who are hardened. No, once you're hardened, you know, you the whole thing, the whole systematic thinking. Once you're hardened, your heart is hardened, that's it for you. You're done, you're damned. And they'll tell a brand new infant believer who is so guilty that they go and confess a sin to them. Don't ever do that because they'll say, well, that's the unpardonable sin. And you say, well, what's, how do I get out of it? There's no getting out of it. You're, you're going to hell. Thanks. Why should I keep coming to church? Exactly. Why should I keep going to that church? So the promise in Ezekiel is for the hardened. The elect have already obtained it. And so I would say that Cosman, Ernst Cosiman is right. I'm almost done with his commentary and got another one on the way by Meniere. Not our own Mike Meniere from the potter's shed, leader of our group there. Although maybe they're related. Mike, are you related to We'll see. But Cosman said this on page 299 of Romans, I call it Romans 80, his 80 commentary. Even unbelieving Israel stands under the once for all choice of God. That's very simple, but he's exactly right. Cosman rightly writes. Even unbelieving Israel stands under the once for all choice of God he then adds something that must be understood by us today. Listen carefully to this one. This is going to answer the question of vessels of wrath fitted for destruction in Romans 9.22. Now, in a sense, that's fearful. I'm not taking away the, the fearfulness of that. But this explains it. He says this, election and rejection take place in like manner in the historical sphere and they come together here he says now we must understand this for a few reasons not least so that we can understand back in Romans 9:22 where paul describes vessels or objects of wrath prepared for destruction in that case paul is speaking about pharaoh and perhaps his army that perished in the Red Sea, the closure of the Red Sea as Israel was saved through the opening of it, a divine act. The wrath of God is executed in the process of salvation. So the destruction that these pharaoh and his armies underwent was within the sphere of history. It was in the realm of history. It was in time and space in history. It does not, listen carefully, it does not, contrary to the ta noemata, the systematic thinking of many Christians who have selected the Christian religion over Islam or Judaism or Buddhism or Sikhism or Jainism or Shintoism, it does not have eternal damnation connotations. You say, how can you say that? Otherwise, why would the God of Israel call Egypt my people in the later eschatological historical sphere, Isaiah 19.25? In other words, God does not reject whom he previously elected, but he does elect whom he previously rejected. That's new, I just said that tonight, it's not in my notes, it's not in anything. So God does not. As Paul said, God doesn't reject his people whom he previously elected. That would make him capricious, that would make him the God of certain forms of Calvinism. So... God does not reject those whom he previously, in history, elected. But he does elect those whom he previously rejected in history. Jacob have I loved, meaning elected. Esau have I hated, meaning rejected. But Esau is redeemed in the final. In fact, as we saw, Jacob said when he met Esau, And after he met Esau, after that was said, he said, seeing the face of Esau was like seeing the face of God. And he had seen the face of God. So how can someone whose face reveals the face of God be someone God hates? That's again, that's metaphorical speaking. But now I'm dabbling in some areas that are deep, but We'll have to deal with them later, I think. I think I just introduced some things that are going to be coming forward now. The destruction that they underwent was within the sphere of history, but Isaiah 19.25 speaks further in history of Egypt in total, just like Israel, all my people. I love Isaiah 19.25. Put it on your fridge for a month. Pick a verse and have it on your fridge for a month. You might even forget that you went to the fridge to get frozen Hershey bars. Because you're going, well, God says, Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Kind of get the idea that all the nations will have come in. For God calls his people Israel, but then he calls Egypt his people. So don't tell me that Pharaoh's armies getting tipped over in the Red Sea and drowned means they went to hell forever. Moses said you'll never see them again forever, but what he meant was you'll never see them in their Adamic ontology ever again. When I die, you're never going to see me again. Not in my Adamic ontology. (laughs) You're going to see somebody different. Somebody altogether like Christ. That's not true today. It's not true today yet. So then, ultimately, and I think this is what Karl Barth was saying. I, don't, I honestly have not read Karl Barth because to read Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H, is to take 10 years off first. It takes 10 years, I think, to go through his 31 volumes. But I know enough about what he was saying and I think what he was saying was election and rejection do come together in history radically in the cross of Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, in the Christ event. And I, th- I would explain it this way, and I don't know if that's exactly what he meant, but I, this is what I mean in what I think he said. I believe that in Jesus Christ, rejection was experienced by him in his crucifixion. Rejection for all. And in his resurrection, the election of all was experienced by him. So election and rejection did come together in history, most radically in the crucified Messiah and in the risen Messiah, in Jesus. So the destruction that they underwent was in the sphere of history. Similarly, the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, doesn't mean that they're final, et- and you have translations, et- that means eternal damnation. Every, every time I read that, I say, really? Does this really mean that? And of course, I know now that it does not. Now, this may all seem like an unusual exegesis, but what else is new? But it's entirely warranted in that our orientation on purpose. You do every time I've done Romans eleven, I've done it in a different way. This time I'm doing it in a slightly different way, because my the arrow is pointing to the true north. I'm aiming toward the climax of this chapter, which is found in Romans eleven, thirty two. God imprisoned all in disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. All means the elect and the rest. The eclectoi, kai, ta, loipoi, hoi loipoi. And so our orientation is to the peak of this mountain that we're presently climbing where we discover God's fulfilled will to have mercy on all the human race. His will, after all, is the salvation of all human beings, in 1 Timothy 2 4. And that we, that is, all of us human beings, come to the knowledge of the truth, which is the reality that is Jesus Christ, who ultimately comprises, in fact, not only ultimately, but now comprises all of reality. What God wills, He does important concept what god wills he does the best way that that's said i think is isaiah 46:10 i will do all my will his intention and his action are one he's not like a man in the adamic ontology who wills and does not do or even worse Wills the good, but does the evil. That's man in Adamic ontology. In fact, Romans 7 isn't Paul speaking before his salvation. Isn't Paul speaking after his salvation. It's Paul using the voice of Adam in man. What I will, I will the good, but I end up doing the evil that I hate. Oh, wretched man, wretched man, miserable cuss is the Adamic man. God isn't like the Adamic man because he he says and he does. The Adamic man says and does not or wills and cannot and even wills the good. He's loaded with good intentions. He says, if I win that lottery, I'm going to help all the poor out in all of America. He wins the lottery, he buys himself mansions. And cars and yachts and boats and drinks himself to death on fancy champagne. He willed the good. It's another thing. It's one thing to will the good when you're broke and you wish you had $500 million. It's another thing to have the $500 million and then rethink your former position. Let's be reasonable now. Let's make this all about me and a few members of my family, instead of the poor, what God wills, he does. He's not like a man in the Adamic ontology who wills and does not do. In fact, who wills the good, but does the evil. We're here close to an interpretation of Romans chapter 7 here. The problem with the hardened heart is that it says, God is altogether like I am. God won't save everybody because God is like I am and I sure as hell wouldn't save everybody. You see? And so they make the hugest mistake ever which is found in Isaiah or rather make that Psalm fifty twenty one, when God says you said that I'm altogether like you are. That's a systematic way of thinking. God is like me. I was made in the image of God therefore God is like me. And so if it were me, I'd throw darts at a dartboard and any country it hit, I'd bomb. I would elect some, and damn some others. And people that have wronged me, they're going to hell in a handbasket. There's no reprieve for them. There's a, some people, though, I'd probably just throw them in a place called purgatory just for a few thousand years until they got the point and finally honored me. God isn't anything like you. He's nothing like you. He's nothing like me. He's nothing like the person whose systematic thoughts fantasize about retribution and revenge. So God is not a man that he should lie, says Numbers 23, 19. Nor is he a mere mortal that he should change his mind. Now, then why does it say, as we read last night, in Exodus thirty-two fourteen, that God changed his mind when Numbers twenty-three nineteen says, God is not a man, that he changes his mind. Because we're talking about a symbolic language there, and it's, it's a tongue-in-cheek type of language because he said to Moses, why don't I destroy all these people and start over with you? And Moses said, let's not do that, Lord. How can you destroy the people that you selected? That's the same thing Paul's saying. It's not what Elijah said. Give Elijah the same choice, and he says, all right, let's get on with this. I'm the only one. I alone am remaining, so let's destroy all of Israel, and you can start with me. Start all over. Moses said, no. How can you? Don't you? Do you want people to say this about you, that you had an evil intention, that you drew your people out through a mighty hand of power in a divine deliverance so that they would die in the wilderness? You want that to be the report about you? Or do you want the report about you to be that you put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness and led them into the promised land because you didn't forsake the people of here? And God says, so God changed his mind. God didn't change his mind. He just wanted to reveal to the modern reader that Moses was conformed to his thinking all along. He knew Moses would do that because he knew that Moses' thinking was conformed to his own thinking, that he would never forsake his people. So when he suggested it, it was a test for Moses. So Numbers 23, 19, compared with Exodus 32, 14, does not present a contradiction to me. It does not project... Project any contradiction in God. But it certainly would if our eyes were not enlightened as to the means and metaphors of God's expressiveness in the scripture. Because that's not the case, because the eyes are unenlightened, they assume that the parable of the rich man in Hades is a picture of someone in hell hopelessly forever. And they put that in their manuals. And they fail to recognize that Luke starts off with a genealogy in which Jesus Christ is called the Son of God and the Son of Adam. And therefore that he is a redeemer of the whole human race. Luke starts off telling us that all flesh will see the salvation of God, salvation of the Lord. All flesh together will see it in Luke 3, 6, quoting Isaiah 40 and verse 5. So all of a sudden this parable means he's not going to do that. hardness of heart hardness of the mind Romans 11:8 See we did all that in 47 minutes we did all of Romans 11:7 Look at Romans 8 we're going to move a little faster just as it stands written First he hits the Torah, then he hits the prophets, then he hits David, the psalmist. The Torah, the prophets, and the psalms all bear witness to this. This is the Old Testament. Paul's eyes were enlightened. Paul is in Christ. His old form of thinking has passed away. He's got a new heart. He's got a new spirit. So he uses the scriptures rightly. Just as it stands written, God has given them, that's the rest, a spirit of stupor, eyes that do not see, Ears that do not hear, even to this day, Moses said it in his own day, Deuteronomy 29.4 of the Torah. Isaiah spoke of this stupor in his day, Isaiah 29.10. Paul speaks of it in his day, I can speak of it in our day. And you can too. So even to this day reflects 2 Corinthians 3.14 even to this day when Moses is read Paul speaks there specifically of the synagogue readings where they begin with the Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad They're, they're saying this but their hearts their minds are hardened they don't see that they're actually proclaiming proclaiming Jesus Christ there but even to this day Paul applies Moses' statement even to this day to his own day because God is the one who spoke of this. And we may apply this to our own day, but not only to part of Israel. There is also a hardening, a spirit of stupor which has afflicted Christendom. And let me give you the definition for Christendom, C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-D-O-M. The sphere in which Christianity is claimed as one's choice of religion. There are Christians that think that America is a Christian nation. They're false. That's wrong. That's not true. America's filled with people that have chosen other faiths. Filled with them. Hundreds of thousands of Sikhs. They just did an advertisement yesterday. They don't want you to confuse them with Muslims. I don't know why. They've got the turbans and they say, I'm a Sikh. S i k h. I knew that from my religion class. I minored in religion at the University of Vermont, so I kind of knew what a Sikh was, and they're not a Muslim. But this country is filled with people of all faiths, and we have to tolerate that. God is going to save everybody. Just relax. My friend is a Sikh. They're going to go to hell. No, they're not. Now, so Christendom is the sphere in which Christianity is claimed, not sphere, but sphere, S-P-H-E-R-E, in which Christianity is claimed as one's choice of religion. But this hardness of heart is an affliction that can and will be remedied. It is experienced in Christendom, just like it was experienced in Israel, but in part, not in totality, and only temporary, not forever. Thank God. This is an affliction that can and will be remedied. And it's being remedied every day when God opens the eyes of another person. Adding to the testimony of the law and the prophets, then Paul adds David from the Psalms. This is actually a quotation of Psalm 69, 22 to 23 which is in the Septuagint 68, 23 to 24. So let's look at Romans eleven nine. 9. Moreover, David says, so he hits him with the Torah, Deuteronomy 29, 4, the prophets represented by Isaiah 29, 10. Now he pr- throws David into the mix, the psalmist, who wrote 70 of the 150 psalms. Moreover, David says, now Paul has quoted David before, notably in Romans 4, 6, where he speaks of the blessedness of the person whom God credits with righteousness apart from works. In other words, someone whom God has saved with no works involved. So that's Romans four, six, but then this is what David says. He says something that is the repeat of a divine decree. I always loved and cherish second Samuel 23, two, and I hope I can say it at the end of my life. David on his deathbed, had one thing to say about what his life consisted of. It wasn't, I became king. I killed Goliath. I was famous in my youth. I was mighty. I had a mighty army of 300, like the 300 Spartans. My 300 guys would put them to shame. I did this. I did this. I had so many wives and so many children. Well, he wouldn't brag about that. After all, there was Absalom and a few other things. You know what he said? The Spirit of God spoke by my mouth. The Holy One of Israel. The Spirit of God spoke using my mouth. 2 Samuel 23, 2. David on his deathbed. David wasn't perfect. Elijah wasn't perfect. David said, okay, go. He submitted to what they wanted to do. They wanted to search. They want to have a beauty contest for all of Israel and find a young girl that would jumpstart him on his (laughs) deathbed. I used to get laughs, but no more, I guess. Uh, But then he submitted. He knew he was dying. So he said, the spirit of the Lord. What's the one thing, David, that you want to say that? enriched your life the spirit of God spoke by me Adonai Yahweh his spirit use my mouth to speak that's all I love it let their table he says you know what that table is not just a literal table it's their whole cultus it's their very system of worship and obedience it's also a possible reference to the money tables same word trapeza which jesus overturned in matthew 21:12 and john 2:15 during his cleansing of the temple complex so it also may refer to the banks or the stores of money that the pharisees covetously hoarded in luke 19:23 and thus to the covetousness of men like the pharisees of jesus time who inspired Jesus' parable of the rich man in Hades. Jesus was simply real demonstrating through a basically a folk tale the end of covetousness isn't pleasant. And he was also creating in the rich man a parallel and a counterpart to the whore of Babylon. He was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem at that time. So we could say a lot more about that, and I think I'm going to have to teach that again, Luke 16, 14 and following. So this is exegesis. Moreover, David says, let their table become a snare. He uses three words for trap. First one is pagida, which is used in Romans 11:9 as a false sense of security that leads to a sudden and unexpected judgment. It's a concealed danger. It's a source of error. Lunida says that this trap, pagida, is primarily a snare for birds, catching birds. And a net, the word theron, is, this is a trap for animals other than birds. So there is a reason why Paul says pagida, which is a snare for birds, and then he uses theron, which is a snare or a trap or a net that catches animals other than birds. And then he uses a third word for trap, scandalon which is essentially a tripping stone, a stone that trips you up and makes you fall into a pit or something. It's a scandalon. It's a that same word used for the cross, incidentally, in Galatians 5.11, a scandalon. It's another word for a trap. So he says, let their table, their very system of thinking and worship, their cultists, and you see this in Isaiah 1 when he speaks to the rulers of Jerusalem and he calls them rulers of Sodom. Your your feasts are nothing to me, he said, your your the aroma of your incense is foul to me. He's talking about their cultus, the very thing that turned them away from him. You you come near me with your lips and speak to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, he says. It's the very cultus, the table, the trapeza that became the reason for the hardness of their heart. And a net and a trap and a means of punishment. In the historic sphere, that is, to them. Let their eyes be darkened. Scotizo, where we get our word scotosis, Spiritual blindness, which is only cured by the divine act of enlightenment of the eyes of the heart. In Ephesians 1.18. So they cannot see. And their backs be continually. Now here's where I want to close. You know where many, maybe you have a translation that says, the word continually that I just said, they say forever. Let their backs forever. It doesn't say forever. It says continually, as long as they're in that state of obedience to their piety. Let their backs be continually, not forever. Even the ESV has forever, bent over, speaking of the burden of the yoke of slavery to sin, which is a yoke that is aggravated or intensified and worsened by the Torah. So here's Romans eleven, nine to ten without the commentary. Moreover, David says, let their table become a snare and a net and a trap and a means of punishment to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be continually bent over. It's vital to understand that what David is talking about here is this is a divine decree. This is part of what we're going to find out God's doing by doing that. He is imprisoning everyone in disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. This whole exegesis I'm doing now is aiming. It's it's attempting to be precise, but it's aiming. The arrow is pointing to true north, to the will of God and the act of God of showing salvific mercy to all the human race. And if that's true, then do we not see... Jesus Christ enthroned in his universally saving significance. And ultimately, do we not see him comprising all of created reality as per Sunday's message, which took us to a peak that will not be equaled again, because that's the heart of the message God has given to me for our generation and the next and the next. So, That's all for tonight. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity. You have perhaps already answered our prayer to enlighten the eyes of our heart. Once again, we think of our brethren, our sisters and brothers in the New Kensington area, especially the ministers and pastors that we met. We pray a great blessing upon them, their families, their assemblies. But most of all, bless the eyes of their heart with enlightenment regarding this glorious message regarding this message of the glory of Christ and we know that dollar bill our friend will be speaking again soon we pray that you'll bless that message and we pray that you'll bless the messages that will be proclaimed by others in this congregation and I thank you for pastor brown who has made so many built so many bridges between so many of the beloved brothers in this city this town And that's so meaningful to you and to your heart, and it is part of your heart. Thank you for that charisma that you have given to him, which he has given back to you so that it may benefit the whole of the body of Christ. May we all realize that each and every one of us has a gift and a charisma, which is to be exercised for the good of the whole, for the good of all. May those gifts be discovered. They can't be by a pastor sitting down and counseling someone as to what their gift is. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. For we are all charismatics because we all have charismas, charismata, gifts from you that can be exercised for the good of all. Whether it's mercy or compassion or hospitality, whether it is a hundred other things. It's There is an unlimited amount. For as many believers as there are, there are that many gifts. And we thank you for this privilege tonight.